Once again, we welcome you to another episode of Moving Forward with Young Voices. And today we are happy to welcome our first contributor. Her name is Alyssa Norris. Alyssa, I want to welcome you to the show for the sake of people who are meeting you for the first time. Take a moment and tell us about yourself and uh, you know who you are, what you do, and the hats that Thanks. you wear. Certainly. Well, happy to be on the show again. Uh, my name is Alyssa Norris. My background is in civil and environmental engineering. Um, I've spent most of my career uh, working on, on renewable energy projects um, in, in across the United States, primarily in the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. And I currently work for a company that does sustainable aviation fuel. I'm very interested in bringing that cost down so it's affordable for everyone, uh, particularly here in the United States. Um, and and making the world, you know, at least a little bit cleaner with less pollution. So uh, that's that's a little bit about me. I'm looking at an article that you wrote for RealClearEnergy.org, and and I think you you bring up a really uh, timely point, and that is sometimes it feels like we're being offered a choice between okay, you can have clean energy, but you got to give up you know, a number of things. You make the case here that clean energy depends on domestic resources and the American worker. Can we really? Can we have all those things and still have clean energy? What are some of the hurdles that that, uh, that people sometimes would say, I mean, you have to choose one or the other? Sure. So I think that this is really a false narrative that has been pushed, frankly, by both sides for far too long. Um, there's this idea, and I would say on the far left, that clean energy um, is all about the environment and you need to spend more money um, in order to get that. And the Republicans, uh, specifically around this area, of course, want domestic jobs and don't want to pay an arm and a leg at the pump. Um, so there is absolutely a, a happy medium here. Um, I think we're starting to see this uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act, which passed about a year ago. Um, over the past few decades, we've seen a lot more jobs, primarily in red states, where that were tied to fossil fuels, um, such as coal, oil and gas jobs diminish. And over the past year, um, there's been particular emphasis on bringing back jobs to those areas through clean energy, uh, which frankly is is a long time coming. It's taken far too long. Um, but I, I do think that we're starting to see that. And that's really the, the only way that the clean energy transition um, is possible. I don't think anyone wants a wants an environment where they can't breathe or have dirty water. But again, we need jobs. We need to have a thriving economy, and we need to make smart financial decisions um, and make sure that that production is is here in the United States, especially if we're the ones paying for it. What are the major roadblocks to uh, domestic production? I mean, you mentioned that we, we've seen, especially particularly in coal and um, natural gas and so forth, and oil. There has been definitely a, a regulatory um, clamping down, but uh, for for us to have domestic production, uh, does this include like, uh, for instance, lithium and other uh, rare earth metals? You know that that we get from China or other places. Certainly. Um, so that there there's been a ton of of what I would call offshore. Uh, transition of these jobs and transition of these natural resources. The United States has so much to offer. Again, from a from a resource development perspective, we have a lot of copper, gold, um, even lithium here in the United States. And if that's developed well, then we can keep those jobs and keep those resources here. Um, I think we're starting to see 
some of those permits change. Um, there's, you know, for decades um, with the EPA's creation and EPA permitting rules, uh, there's been a lot of stringencies. Um, and sometimes that's been taken too far. There is a way to develop these uh, particularly rare earth minerals um, in, in an environmentally conscious way while still keeping that that funding and those jobs here in the States. Um, we're seeing a little bit of relaxation, not as much on the mining side, but on the air permitting side. Um, for example, the state of Washington uh, recently passed rules that if you're creating a sustainable aviation fuel or a sustainable fuel plant, some of those permitting regulations are now relaxed. And I think states across um, across the nation and, and even you know the entire country itself is realizing that in some cases, maybe we went too far um, and that that's really putting up a barrier to be able to create um, or develop uh, different projects that, that can help and are imperative to the clean energy transition. So I think we're seeing a, a little bit more sanity and a little bit more um, maybe ha a happy medium that that fits the bill for both. It sure feels like that pendulum swings hard one way or the other. Uh, I mean, in, in your article, you reference uh, Oliver Anthony's song, Rich Men North of Richmond, and, you know, it laments what's happened to, you know, much of the blue collar workers who have seen jobs shut down and, and uh, you know, the energy uh, sector, you know, diminished. But uh, at the same time, you know, who who stands in the way of finding that happy medium? Is it, is it just is it the politics, the nature of Republicans versus Democrats? Or are, are there other interests that also are at play in, in, in making sure that uh, it doesn't go too easily to that middle ground? Sure. I, I think a lot of it, um, frankly, has has been politics. So, again, kind of making it an all or nothing uh, led led by activists on primarily left or environmentalists um, looking for the kind of what I call a golden solution, maybe that doesn't take into place um, some of these transition options that will get us to a better place. Um, you can't just automatically find utopia. There are steps and, and things that need to be done in order to get there. Um, so I think on one side you have that and kind of as a knee jerk reaction, um, You've seen on the other side uh, some additional roadblocks. Um, I, I think that that really is a lot of it, as well as you know, living in the global economy that we do. It was a lot cheaper uh, and a lot easier to again offshore a lot of those jobs and a lot of those development to developing countries. Um, a lot of third world countries have um, have benefited in a lot of ways uh, by having lithium mines or copper mines or things that traditionally would have been built or produced here in the United States move over to other places because it was so much um, so much less expensive. Uh, and there weren't nearly as many permitting or regulatory um, roadblocks in place. So again, I think there's a, a happy medium. We want to protect all workers and, and protect the environment, but you have to have jobs and, and be able to have a thriving economy. Interesting. I, I I really appreciate uh, that you're explaining it in these terms, because I always when I hear people talk, whether it's climate activists or whether it's, you know, um, oil and gas industry lobbyists, it, it really does seem like, look, it can only be this way or it can only be that way. And and it. Uh, where, where do the incentives come from for the companies, you know, to come more toward clean energy and for the, the you know, the climate activists to come towards we need, you know, to be able to have economic 
flourishing as, as well as as pursuing that that clean energy option? Sure. So a lot of that, I think, really is in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, there's over three hundred and seventy billion dollars that are set aside. Uh, to invest in in clean energy production. And the keyword here that that I want to focus on is investing. Um, that indicates that there should be a payback of some sort. Um, in this case, you know, financial as well as positive for the American people. Um, this isn't a, it's not a charity. It's not, you know, just a grant where they're giving out money. Um, but again, they they want to see with with this legislation, uh, that money and those jobs come back to the United States and further uh, spur the economy. Um, so I think that that's a really, really big distinction that needs to be talked about, um, particularly for the clean energy transition. Again, it's not it's not a charity case. The economics have to work um, and we're we're investing um, with with the intent of a payback. Now, currently, I, I have a son who is studying uh, renewable energy, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, in particular, learning to uh, to build and work on uh, wind turbines, which uh, the wind mm -hmm. apparently blows a lot in in the part of the country where I live. But <laughs> I, I'm I'm curious if if that if the wind and solar approaches are are going to be able to catch up to where they're they're actually profitable. And please correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that. Um, for for all the good that they do, they're still kind of they're they're still quite expensive. It's hard to get that return on investment. Is, is there any truth to that? Sure. Um, so I think we're we're seeing the gap close more and more. But right now, they're not uh, economically sound without the um, incentives. And we need to get to a place where where that is true. Again, that gap is lessening year in year, uh, year in and year out. But um, that's that's really the the way that we need to be moving. Um, and I think that other clean energy projects like fuel will also move in that direction, uh, but it needs, okay, needs to happen in order to be sustainable. Got about 30 seconds here. Just one last quick question. Will there ever come a time where government won't have to be a, a moving force behind this? In other words, where the market will demand it and support it to where it doesn't need subsidizing? Certainly. I hope so. I think we're seeing small sectors of the private industry uh, making these changes um, and requiring clean energy. Um, so I think that that is, that is headed in the right direction. But right now, we're not quite there yet. Um, again, for this to be sustainable and good for the American people and globally, it has to be um, a good investment. Um, and then we want those economic payoffs. Again, we are talking with Alyssa Norris. She's an engineer um, and also a contributor for Young Voices. Where can people find you on social media? So I'm on LinkedIn, Alyssa Norris um, at Aether Fuels. Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Getting to meet some uh, new faces and voices this week on the program. I want to welcome Ben Cribben. He uh, joins us from the UK. And Ben, uh, for the sake of folks who are meeting you for the first time, um, in addition to being a uh, Young Voices contributor, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hmm. So, my name is Ben. Um, at the moment, I'm based in the UK, but uh, I've lived in Paris and in Germany in the last few years. So, I'm something of a wanderer as a, an English teacher in several countries. I'm also at the beginning of my writing journey. I'm finding things that interest me to write about. For example, Labour's green policies, uh, intentional communities, new ways of forming communities. So that's who I am at the moment. All right. Now, I um, 
I'll admit, I don't have on my radar screen a lot of what is going on politically as far as the political races in the UK, but uh, you have a wonderful article on ecohustler.com about four green policies that are both popular, that make clear economic sense, and could actually help win votes for the Labour Party. Talk to me a little bit about uh, why the Labour Party um, needs votes. And, and talk to me about how these green policies, let's we can go into some detail as to what these green policies are and, and why they would actually be a, be a safe bet politically. Yeah, um, let me maybe back up with the, the political situation in the UK. We're about um, a, a year away from a general election. The Labour Party is currently leading by about 44% to 26% in the opinion polls. It doesn't seem to have changed. Um, over the summer, there was one particular small election which the Conservatives won, um, and it was seen at the time that this was uh, in opposition to a particular green policy that Labour had put in place called the ultra-low emission zone, which is a policy designed to uh, penalise drivers of old polluting cars in London. And the Conservatives won that, and that raised the question could this be the, the way that the Conservatives snap the victory back from Labour? Could they distinguish themselves as the party on the side of the people and Labour as the, the eco-fanatic, is a phrase they've used? Um, <laughs> so I was in, investigating that, and my conclusion so far was no. The, the polls haven't changed that much. And I really think that there is a, a majority in favour of green policies in general. And so that was what I was interested in. And I thought I would explore some that I thought would be both economically viable and popular. I appreciate the background on that. And again, I, I, I thank you for, for bringing me up to speed. Um, first of all, I, I just give me a general feel as far as, as green policies. How does the average voter in the UK feel about this? Do they, do they see that as, as a positive thing or do they feel like it's something that, that is maybe being forced on them? And that's a that's a good question. There has been polling to suggest about seventy five percent of the the population support reaching net zero by twenty fifty. Um, sorry, seventy two percent. For conservative voters, according to one poll, it was slightly higher, with seventy three percent. So, in my opinion, I think there is a general uh, uh, yes support of getting of green policies in general. Perhaps the the specific. And how we get there, maybe less so. Like um, banning gas boilers is somewhat less popular. And the, these ultra-low emission zones in London and soon other cities are more controversial because it, they, seem, they may seem to, to penalise uh, poorer people who have older cars. Um, but I, in general, I think there is a, a majority support for environmental action in some sense, if that's clear. Yeah, that, no, that that makes sense. And I have been seeing quite a few uh, headlines about those uh, ultra low emission zones. And uh, and it appears there, there's there, there's some disagreement here and there. But uh, talk to me about the policies that make the most sense, though. And, and in other words, uh, ways that, that green um, policies could be implemented without uh, undermining the economy and, and basically forcing everyone to take a step down in their standard of living. Yeah, so, so I went for four in my article. Um, first one I went for was wind. Um, interesting facts I found out that uh, since the since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, they have Ukraine has built twenty uh, new uh, wind power power turbines. Uh, the UK has managed two. 
So we're doing somewhat uh, worse than a country um, currently involved in a conflict. Um, and that's because of uh, some planning regulations. It is very hard um, to build new wind turbines in the UK. Um, one, basically one complaint from a resident um, basically derail, can derail the whole project. So that was my first uh, policy was to, my first suggested policy would be to reverse that, reverse that um, particular planning law so that we can increase the number of wind farms. Um, I think the, there is a consensus that they, they can provide a lot of cheap energy. Um, we're a windy isle. We have lots of um, wind panels. We have um, transport corridors like the size of motorways and railways, which, where we can build them so we're not blighting kind of the open countryside too much. And well, there was also a study I remember reading. Um, if, we, if we built wind farms everywhere, which we won't, we could generate something like 140% of the power we currently need. So uh, wind seems like a, a no-brainer. Okay. Talk to me about uh, the, the river pollution situation. Yes. Um, I don't know if this makes the American media, but um, throughout this year, this has been um, a recurring story in British media. It's the state of the British rivers. Um, polluted from sewage overflows, from storm drains overflowing. And something I found and wanted to write more about is it's not just sewage. Like We hear a lot about that. Um, farming, um, very sadly, does cause quite a bit of river pollution in the UK. Um, it starts up in the, the highlands or the, the higher areas where um, basically farming on this on land that should be used to drain or to absorb water means the water runs off into the rivers and causes floods. And there have been some high-profile floods in Somerset about 10 years ago that were caused by that problem. Then we get downriver, and from the fields, it's the pesticides, it's the fertilizers. It's one in particular called slurry that come off the fields into the rivers. Um, I, for me, it, it makes pretty much pretty clear economic sense that um, if our rivers are dirty, it costs us more to clean them because we need them for drinking water. We need them for other purposes. So what I was, I would suggest, my point here was properly fund the uh, the river regulating body, like uh, Natural England, uh, other uh, bodies that would police the rivers and try and look for these spill it, uh, um, pollution spills and other forms of pollution, so we can stop it at source. And that's uh, it seems like a cheaper way of doing it than spending more to clean it up. I think. Okay. Um, we've got about two minutes left. Let's touch on the uh, petrol car ban uh, that should be in place by 2030. How ambitious is that ban? Are they are they looking to just stop the sale of gas-powered vehicles by that time, or um, are they looking to actually get the existing ones off the road? Well, um, the Conservatives have just pushed it back to 2035, so um, they think it's ambitious. Labour say it's 2030. Um to me, it seems um, ambitious. Maybe 2035 is the better target. Um, as well as that, we need to improve the infrastructure. Right? We don't have enough charging points. We have nowhere near as many as France. So that's a key thing, as well as removing the petrol cars, building the infrastructure for the electric vehicles. Okay, we've got about one minute left here. Um, finally, you talk about making the economic case for green energy. What does that look like? That looks like... Um, changing the conversation from doom and gloom is important to the economy. Um, just use a phrase from American politics, uh, it's the economy, stupid. That's what gets people voting. That's what wins elections. And uh, I think, having read, read this, and there is some evidence for this, that 
there is an economic case to um, green policies and building the green economy, investing in our green infrastructure. And I think that's a good way for Labour to win the next election, prove that they're the, they're the party of economics and, and the environment. Okay, again, we are talking with Ben Cribben. He is a Young Voices contributor, as well as, as you put, pointed out, a wanderer of sorts. Um, ben, where can people follow you, on either on social media, or where can they access your work? Yes, so I have a sub-stack called Rosaries, uh, the Catholic prayer book, and I'm on Twitter at uh, B.A. Cribben. That's my Twitter handle, and I would love to see you there. All right. Very good. Very informative. And you covered a lot of uh, material in a very short amount of time. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I hope we talk again soon. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome a new Young Voices contributor to this segment of the show. I want to welcome Jonas Dew. Uh, Jonas, first of all, did I get your last name correct? Did I say it correctly? Yes, that's correct. (laughs) All right. Uh, People are meeting you for the very first time. We know you're a Young Voices contributor, but take just a moment. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm currently a junior, undergraduate junior at Columbia University. I study political science and economics, and I um, run a magazine called the Columbia Independent. And our mission is to promote free speech, promote discourse, you know, sort of unite the two sides of, you know, campus political battles and create a space where people can sort of express their views. And through that, I've sort of had a lot of conversations with people on the left and people on the right. And I've been very interested in sort of understanding how our generation thinks politically and what are the issues that matter to our generation. Okay, and of course, with the upcoming presidential election next year, um, your generation is playing an increasingly larger role as as they are coming in as as voters. Um, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for USA Today about uh, how Trump and the GOP turn off young voters, and I thought, boy, this this is a good topic because I I've observed that as well, just out there in the Twitter sphere or whatever X is called these days. Um, it, it seems like Trump has a very difficult time gaining traction, and I guess by extension, so do some of the uh, um, old school GOP uh, members. Talk to me about where the disconnect is. Why is it that uh, that younger voters just don't resonate with either Trump or the GOP? Yeah, so I think that's an excellent question to raise. And I think the first thing that I would point to is, I guess, just personality wise. I think our generation, you know, we're young people. We came of age. We were in middle school, high school when Trump was running. So we don't really understand policy too much. So what do we look to? We look to the TV appearances. We look to how he's presenting himself. And while his rhetoric, his sort of political incorrectness is very appealing to a certain kind a voter, it's just not appealing to young people. People are very turned off by that kind of very just like, oftentimes very disrespectful language. So I think that was the first impression that he left and it was not a very good impression. And I think the second thing I would point to is um, I think young people of all generations, of most generations generally tend to be liberal, but especially Gen Z, because you look at the things that we grew up around, we grew up around 
uh, COVID, around global warming becoming an increasingly large issue, around these viral videos of police shootings. And this is all exacerbated by social media, which is creating a lot of anxiety about our futures, about the future of the country. Young people care a lot about the direction society, the country and the world is headed. And I think with the internet, these issues have become really accentuated and young people do tend to look to government as a solution for that, unfortunately, in my opinion. And I think that the conservative movement, especially with all of the distractions of MAGA, they've been unable to provide that. I'm looking back to when I was uh, when I cast my first vote in a presidential election and I was 18 years old and it was for Ronald Reagan, you know, back in 1984. And it was a very different face. Conservatism looked a lot different. Um, you know, there, there was much more uh, decorum and, and respect among the candidates, even when they vigorously disagreed. Um, lately, it seems like politics has become almost a blood sport. And I, I'm just curious, is it, is it the negative, um, the, the name calling, or, or is it, do the policies play into the, the hesitancy that Gen Z has in, in supporting, you know, GOP candidates? I think policy is one big part, but I would say first and foremost, it's about more social things. It's about social issues, about the things that you see uh, first when you look up the candidates, right? So like, how is this candidate presenting themselves? Do I perceive this candidate as someone who's racist, as a good person? Um, I think these are the things that they look to. But also, at a school like Columbia, there are a lot of policy discussions going on, and there are a lot of young people that do care about policy. And something that I consistently hear from people that are on the left, um, even a lot of moderates, is that conservatives simply don't seem like they are providing solutions. I mean, we have young people gra graduating from even Ivy League universities who are unable to um, you know, buy a home, rent, even rent a home, start a family, um, pursue a job that um, is, you know, well-paying and stable. And when you have people faced with these challenges, they just, they don't see the appeal in conservatism. Conservatism hasn't provided a solution to, you know, the rising cost of living and the other concerns that I've mentioned. Okay. I mean, one thing you point out in your article is that, uh, you know, uh, the, the woke movement, isn't really resonating with every young person. I know sometimes uh, older generations will stereotype, oh, everybody's a snowflake and, you know, it's all because they're all woke. That's not necessarily true. In fact, I, I've seen some very freedom-minded um, members of Generation Z that I think are, are exemplary. However, what exactly does the GOP stand for? Uh, you know, um, sure, we're against what the Democrats are doing, but um, talk to me, Jonas, about does the GOP do an even adequate job of communicating what it stands for? I don't think so at all, actually. I think that the GOP right now is sort of the, like, anti-whatever-the-Democrats-are-doing party. There's no uniting message. In fact, they didn't even make a platform for the 2020 election, which is ridiculous. So right now you see anti-woke, you see anti-transgender, uh, you see all these antis that they're, that they're pushing, and there's no really coherent messaging. And I think freedom, conservatism, that comes in 
And that's a real way for the right to be able to actually point to a set of values, to point to a set of principles for things that they positively stand for, instead of just being like anti-woke, right? Instead of being anti-woke, we can say that we stand for equality of opportunity. We stand for individual rights. These are things that make sense, right? And when you don't have these kinds of principles, you start to see the effects, right? You can see what's happening in Florida with Ron DeSantis, right? He's fighting woke with big government, which is not exactly a conservative principle, right, in his war on Disney. So when you have something like freedom conservatism, I think it's going to offer a real opportunity for conservatives to actually have a platform. Now, you mentioned a couple of other groups uh, like College Republicans, uh, Turning Point USA, that uh, that likewise are, are, are gaining traction. Um, I'm just curious, Jonas, what, what impact, if any, do you see them having in next year's uh, presidential race? Are, are they big enough to, to make some waves that can be uh, seen and felt? Well, I think that... Groups like college Republicans, not all college Republican chapters, but many of the more uh, provocative ones, but especially uh, things like Turning Point USA. These are are groups that are, yes, inspiring people who are already on the right to go out and vote, but they are also inspiring people on the left to vote in opposition to them. It's sort of the same thing you see in national politics, where when you have polarizing candidates, what happens is the other side comes out more. So I think these groups are doing mobilization, but do I think they're being productive for advancing the interest of the right now? Now, and and for the sake of those who might think, well, Jonas, it sounds like you're kind of a uh, a never Trumper. Actually, it it's, sounds like you worked to uh, reelect Donald Trump in 2020, but you have some pretty solid reasons why he shouldn't be the nominee next year. Talk to me about those reasons. Yeah, so I think the article um, it's a little bit misleading because I think what you're referring to is a link to a related article that they had just placed poorly. I don't, I did not actually uh, support Trump in 2020. Um, That was USA USA Today's sort of web design error. But um, what I will say is that um, I think think Gen Z is a never Trump generation. I think Gen Z is open to conservative causes. I think they're open to conservative ideals. But there's just nobody has been capitalizing on that. And nobody on the right has sort of made a concerted effort to actually be a big tent party for our generation. And is is that where they're missing the the big opportunity? I think so, because if you look at the demographic data for 2024, you're going to see that uh, Gen Z and millennials, they're going to make up um, at least the same proportion of voters as um, the baby boomer generation and older. So it's, you know, these this is going to become, you know, 40, 50 percent of the electorate in the coming elections. So this is where the future is. And this is where they this is where they have to focus their attention if they want to win. OK, so we got about a minute left, but I have to throw this one at you. Um, Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, he, he definitely doesn't seem to be at home with either the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. What what do you hear among uh, members of, of Generation Z? Is there any interest whatsoever in, in his stance? I don't really think there is too much interest in RFK Jr. Um, I think his conspiracy theories are... Yes, they're not the same ones that Trump are pushing, but at the end of the day, they are still conspiracy theories. They are anti-vax theories. These are things that are broadly unpopular. So while, while there might be some appeal, I, I don't think there's, there's much mass appeal among Gen Z. 
Okay. Just wondering. It's it's shaping up to be a pretty interesting year next year, and uh, and it sounds like you've tapped into one of the reasons why. Um, again, we're talking with Jonas Dew. He's a Young Voices uh, contributor. Jonas, for people who would like to follow you, tell us where they can find you on social media, also where they can follow your work. Absolutely. So um, they can find me on um, X, formerly Twitter, at uh, Jonas Y. Dew, J-O-N-A-S-Y-Dew. And um, my work is published regularly in my magazine, ColumbiaIndependent.org, as well as through Young Voices. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to introduce you to uh, Benjamin Garbedian. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Ben, since we're meeting you, or Benjamin, rather, do you prefer Ben or Benjamin? What's what's your preference? I prefer, I usually prefer Benjamin. Okay, Benjamin, tell us a bit about yourself, um, who you are, what you do. Yeah, so thanks for having me. I am a young person from southeastern Wisconsin. I've been involved in politics since I was uh, 17. I'm 22 now, finishing up college. Uh, And I'm just interested in researching and writing all sorts of different policy areas, specifically um, more regulatory and sort of what I call really nerdy things, Um, things that won't make mainstream press, but still impacts a lot of people's lives. Um, So I'm, I'm a Young Voices contributor, and I'm really happy to be here today. All right. Well, we're talking about a topic that I know is on a lot of people's minds, and that is um, clean energy. And uh, I'm looking at an article that you've written about how Illinois is among other states that are, you know, kind of clamoring to be the leaders in in that quest for clean energy. And you say that Illinois could go carbon free, but not without nuclear. I'm I'm becoming a big fan of of nuclear power. Talk to me about the situation of uh, of carbon free electricity, and and how far away are we from a state actually leading out and being able to to be carbon free in terms of of their energy? Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, nuclear energy generally, um, and I, I'm not an energy expert, so I can't say how close a state is to being completely carbon free with their energy. But I do know this, um, we don't in America physically have the resources needed to be entirely wind power, entirely solar power, uh, hydrothermal, those types of green energy. Nuclear needs to be part of the solution. And it's ironic because up until two, three years ago, Illinois is actually a leader in this. Uh, They currently get just over 50% of their state's electric uh, consumption from nuclear power plants. So they're doing really great. Um, they have a ban, it's a vestigial ban, about a dozen states have one left from the 1970s on building new nuclear power plants in their state. And uh, two years ago in 2021, the governor there, J.B. Pritzker, signed a law that said that they would have 100% uh, renewable electricity by year 2050. And then there would be benchmarks along the way to sort of scale up to that. Uh, So he signed that, and a lot of people, myself included, thought that that would mean that the nuclear moratorium would go away because this is a needed component of the solution. Uh, And that didn't happen. Uh, The Illinois legislature this session passed a bill that would have repealed the nuclear moratorium, and J.B. Pritzker vetoed it. Uh Uh, He cited safety concerns and monopoly concerns, which I think are a little bit overhyped. And so I really don't know what their plan is or how they're going to be able to do this because they have a legislative mandate to have entirely 
uh, green electricity, and then they have a legislative mandate that you can't use the most effective way to do that to get there. So they're kind of at a crossroads here. Yeah, that sounds like they're, they're setting themselves up for kind of an impossible situation. I'm curious, that 1970s legislation, uh, you know, that moratorium on, on nuclear power plants, um, did that have its genesis in the aftermath of the Three Mile Island incident in, in the late 70s? Uh, was it, was it over, an overabundance of caution for nuclear power? Yeah, uh, it's primarily because of Three Mile Island. Uh, that was a, a near catastrophe, and people were rightfully scared. I mean, the, the media covered it for the weeks that the crisis was, and the pictures coming out of people fleeing the area around the plant um, was understandably fearful. But in the decades since, we've gotten incredibly good at nuclear safety and at making sure that those fears are mitigated and are really, really unlikely to ever happen again. Um, but the bans still stay on the books. So there were a lot of these that were passed sort of in a rush. Um, over the past decade or two, a few of them have been repealed. My home state of Wisconsin actually repealed our nuclear moratorium uh, back in 2015. And some just still have them on the books here. Illinois is one of 12 states that has it still. Um, so yeah, it's out of Three Mile Island. There's a, uh, there was a push to repeal the bans, and then the accident in uh, Fukushima with the hurricane in Japan a number of years ago sort of halted that because it was another thing that ginned up fears. But the reality is um, American safety standards are much different than Japanese safety standards. And also, it's incredibly unlikely for a nuclear power plant to get hit by a hurricane and then a tsunami. Uh, I'm sorry, not a hurricane, just a, a tsunami and an earthquake. Um, and we don't plan for those things to happen every single day. But even if we do, we have contingency plans for when natural disasters happen. So I, I'm curious if these small modular nuclear reactors <laughs> might be partially an answer to um, this moratorium on, on creating new power plants. I mean, when we talk about the old school major, you know, big scale power plants, yeah, that's, that's a big deal. And I could see there being a lot of regulatory hurdles to clear. But um, are these small modular nuclear reactors changing the landscape and making it easier to access nuclear power if that's what a state wants to do? If there is no ban, those modular reactors, and again, none of them have been built yet, but theoretically with the plans that we've seen, um, those modular reactors would make it much easier to put them in cities, closer to cities, um, in more rural areas that can provide electricity. I think those are going to be the future, but unfortunately in the 12 states with these nuclear moratoriums, those still can't be built. They're straight bans on anything involving nuclear power. Um, a couple states have exemptions for research purposes if a university wants to do something, but those aren't able of uh, capable of electrical generation on the scale that we need to be able to power uh, things other than science experiments. Okay, hopefully I'm not asking you to act as a fortune teller here, but uh, Benjamin, what would it take for these holdout states to, to change their minds? Are they doing this just out of habit? Is it just inert, you know, bureaucratic inertia that we have to keep this in place? Um, the landscape, it would appear, has changed. There's been, you know, almost 50 years of safety improvements and, and safety records that they could look to. It seems like it shouldn't be so difficult to, to update those policies. I would think so, too, but oftentimes uh, American jurisprudence and legislation is behind the culture because it just takes so long to get this stuff moving. Um, I don't know exactly what it takes. I don't think there's one single linchpin, but I think the culture has to continue to shift. And I think people have to know that these things are in place and that they're preventing uh, Americans from accessing reliable, cheap 
and clean power. If you're a person who cares about environmental issues, like this is a way to do that and to, to not have to have coal fired or other types of power plants. Like nuclear power is, is reliable and very safe. So as of this time, at least I'm looking at your article here, it looks like uh, Illinois is not in the lead, but but Georgia may actually be in the lead of taking that uh, taking over that, that clean energy charge. What are the other states we ought to be keeping an eye on that uh, that are headed in the right direction on this matter? Uh, there are a couple. It's not necessarily states. It's based on the energy companies wanting to build these things. So Georgia has the only uh, nuclear power plant to be opened in the 21st century currently, uh, and they'll be they they plan on opening another reactor next year uh, in the spring. Uh, it, it's not necessarily that a state is good or bad on it. It's that a lot of states have opened it up to the market to innovate, and now it's up to electric companies and consumers to want these things. Um, so I think just keep looking to the research and to the people who want to build smaller reactors, more module reactors, and new types of reactors. The era of giant cooling towers is probably coming to an end, even though that was what was built in Georgia. Um, but I, I think the future is bright. It just might take a little bit longer to get it uh, going. And as far as uh, Governor Pritzker's concerns about uh, um, monopolies, is that always going to be, uh, you know, a, a, a challenge? I, I imagine that even even a modest nuclear power plant is going to be a pretty big undertaking. It's going to take some pretty deep pockets to set something like that in motion. Yeah, it will, and that also comes from just the nature of how electric companies are treated in American legislation. Um, one company has to operate this. You can't really have co-ownership of a power plant. Uh, or at least not that I've seen. So it's a concern. I, I think that it's not as big of a fear. Everybody has to have power. These are regulated as public utilities. Um, but uh, nuclear should be the future. And letting companies innovate with it is actually a way to create competition. Because if a company wants to create nuclear power plants and compete against the coal-fired ones, that's competition. That's not a monopoly. All right. We are talking with uh, Benjamin Garbedian. He is a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Benjamin, where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find your writing? Uh, my social media handle on Twitter or X now is at ActuallyBG. All right. Very good. It's good to talk with you. I, I hope we get to talk on this subject again. Thank you. You as well. I appreciate the opportunity.